Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Brennan Burkhart is a rancher and co-owner of HTTL Farms, a small family farm located in central Nevada. According to the Burkharts, it is in the middle of nowhere, and they absolutely love it. It is a joint venture between the Burkhart and Jolly families. The Burkhart family, including Brennan's wife Joanna and their four children, have been in that valley since 2017, where all but one of their children has been born. Their goal is to build the business so that the Jolly family can eventually join the Burkharts to live and work the land together. The farm consists of 180 acres of pasture and about 150 cows. They do not own a tractor and they do not raise cash crops, both conscious decisions as they strive to do their best to be good stewards of the land. Brennan and his family care for the soil and recognize it as the foundation for good human and planetary health. They strive to cultivate biodiversity by raising a wide variety of different grasses on that soil, also known as polyculture. Their cattle consume those grasses directly from the field and return the fertilizer to the, sto- to the soil. HTTL Farms keeps things simple and believes that simple is best. Brennan Burkhart, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited. Absolutely. It's so cool to talk to you. I actually met you in person two weeks ago. I have the best neighbors, man. My neighbors, like, they know me, and they help me not miss things that are going on in the neighborhood. And your mom also lives in the neighborhood, which I was unaware of her and, and, and that she had lived here. But she had posted something about you guys coming up and bringing some uh, beef to try. And one of my friends, former client, tagged me in the thing. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, yes, I want to go to this meet and greet and want to come meet you and talk to ranch and try your beef and man that was so much fun it was so great to talk to you and the food was absolutely delicious and I thought what a great person to have on this show we've never actually talked to a rancher so we're so grateful for you and all of your work well yeah I'm, I'm excited to be here it was great to meet you I feel like it was a, a good chain of events that made that happen so looking forward to that yeah I think so too and and from what I understand I don't think you've been in the beef industry for very long only a few years so how many times have you tried to do that where you've like gone to another place to try to sell your beef I, I feel like that was a pretty successful visit for you guys yeah it was very successful and it was the most successful we've ever had that's because it was the first one we've ever done oh so. nice I, I hope you'll be doing more of them yeah, we, we plan to. We're going to try to do another one in Utah uh, before the end of the year. Yeah, so. awesome. Oh, that's great. It's really kind of um, unfortunate around here. We have a farmer's market that comes to our neighborhood in particular, um, the Daybreak area of South Jordan. And as you know, it's not like the biggest area, and it's not going to attract a lot of like the big farms and big producers. But it's, it's really disappointing. I would say probably 60 different booths there. There might be, I don't know, five or six that sell any kind of food, and there's none yeah. that actually sell beef there's a few that sell like you know their fruits and vegetables and whatever they're harvesting but it's really kind of tough to to make relationships with ranchers with farmers with the people that are producing our food and i just think that's such a missed area that we could be doing a lot better job of sure yeah no there's there's really not a lot of people doing you know farming and ranching anymore and so the the opportunity to to interact and meet with those people is getting smaller and smaller i think yeah so, yeah that's interesting i'm surprised they don't have beef though at the at that farmer's market that really surprises me i know you're more likely to come home with like a hand-painted coffee mug than you are to come home with any kind of food from fruits or vegetables or meat or anything yeah it's really unfortunate it's not much of a farmer's market which is fine they're cool coffee mugs i just wish there was more food there <laughs> more farmers <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we are recording this. It looks like you are outside on your farm property, which is absolutely beautiful. The pictures are marvelous. You look completely isolated out there. Like we said in the introduction, it might be in the middle of nowhere. I, I would love to hear your story about ranching. This is not something that you grew up doing, as far as I understand it correctly. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So I grew up in the suburbs, um, in Texas, actually. Uh, and where we lived, it was kind of on the edge of development. Uh, you know, and so there was still some some farmland and pasture land, uh, but most of that was being built up, you know, bought up and built up. And um, one of my first jobs, uh, actually, while I was still in high school, was working construction. And I, you know, I learned some good skills there. But one of the things I started to notice is that we were building up on these, you know, pastures and timberland, and and uh, after a while, that started to bother me because. I realized that I really enjoy being in those types of places and, and what I was doing was directly contributing to the loss of those kind wow. of places. And, uh, so I, I had kind of a conundrum there, um, you know, to, to reconcile. And I got to the point where I decided that instead of, uh, working to take away those kind of places, I wanted to actively be a part of building those places. And, and I think I was about 18 or 19 when I decided that. Um, and then, you know, just set my mind to it and, and, uh, was able to meet my wife who grew up, uh, doing, doing this kind of stuff. And she's been a huge help, uh, you know, to kind of guide me along uh, the path to get to where we are today. Yeah. How did the two of you meet? Um, so we met in college. She was actually a teacher's assistant in a livestock handling course. And, uh, I always tease her, but this is true, but. I saw her working cows and I thought, man, she looks good doing that. That's and awesome. Decided I, decided I wanted to meet her and, and I, I was sure she was married or had a boyfriend or something, but I, I thought I'll, I'll never, never find out until I ask. And, and I asked and she was available and we started dating right away. Wow. I love that. What a cool story. That's fantastic. That's you definitely have found your soulmate for sure. That's the circumstances of your meeting. That's amazing. So when you guys got married and were done with school, did you immediately get into ranching? Like what was the pathway to get to where you are today? Sure. So, um, before I met her, um, you know, I, I think I met her when I was in my early twenties, uh, 21, 22. And before I met her, I was, I was trying really hard to find work uh, in agriculture. Um, and I, th- I think it was actually the, oh, I think it was about the same time that I met her is when I got my first job on a ranch. It was up in Idaho. Um, and so, um, I just, I worked for, uh, different ranches, a few different ranches up in Idaho. Um, after we got married, uh, I worked with her family a little bit after or before we got married. And after, um, and then, um, yeah, and then after I graduated school, I got a degree in ag business management. Um, and I, I worked for a local farm up in, in Idaho for a little while and then came to Nevada for, a uh, a cattle ranch opportunity. And, um, and then from there, her, her family is our neighbors out here. So before we got here, uh, the guy that owns this land. He needed uh, he needed someone to help him. He he had lost his hired guy, and he needed a hired man to help him run the place. And 
And so my in-laws, they mentioned it to me and said, Hey, you, you know, you should come work with this guy. Uh, and so that's what brought us to this ranch specifically. It was, was work with him. And, and he was, he was kind of ready to retire, uh, ready to phase out. And, uh, so it worked out really well, uh, where eventually after a few years of working with him, uh, I was able to, to purchase the cattle from him and then, uh, arrange a lease agreement for the, for the land. And so that's, that's where we've been for the past two years. Wow. That's amazing. So you own the land outright at this point or it's leased? No, we're, we're leasing the land from him and then we own the, the cattle herd. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And how long ago was it that you first moved onto that property? Like how long have you personally lived on that land? Yeah. So it, it's been just about six years now. Wow. That's amazing. So I lived in my house for 13 years and I, you, you know, daybreak daybreak is amazing. Our neighborhood is absolutely awesome. The great Lake, um, lots of different walking, you know, places to walk and trails and things like that. And it, it's really great. And over the years I've gotten to know the neighborhood quite a bit, but it really wasn't until the pandemic and, and us being placed on unemployment that I had enough time to really make sure that I get out and walk the neighborhood like every single day. So I it, typically, I don't do any less than about 10 miles in my neighborhood and I've realized like for how much, for how much I love to see new places and travel to new areas and have new experiences, I've gotten to appreciate being on one space really intensely, a lot more intensely than I have in the past. And you get into like the cycle of what a normal day is like, what a year is like, where the animals are, where the robins go. I notice like flight patterns of different birds. It's really pretty amazing to like relate closer to my landscape. And I would argue that you probably have that beat a hundredfold for living as long as you have on one piece of land and being out there all the time. What has it been like for you to like really understand and appreciate, um, the, the cycle of nature way more than most people could? Yeah, it, it's been awesome. Uh, you know, I, I grew up kind of transient. We moved, uh, to several different States and, you know, different towns. And so I, I never really stayed in one place very long. Um, and, and I really wasn't aware of that kind of stuff as much until I was, you know, a late teenager either. Um, but yeah, I've, I've certainly noticed that here. Uh, you know, like one thing I I've done since we got here was I'm, I've made notes about the weather. You know, I, I have a day planner that I use to help me, you know, stay organized and, and I make notes about the weather. And so I'll go back and look, uh, you know, in my, my past year's planners and say, you know, so we got snow on this day last year. Uh, and I actually just looked at that last year, this last weekend, we had snow here, Wow, uh, which was amazing. You know, now it's, you know, clear skies and 70 degrees and, wow. uh, you know, but, but it's, it's been really neat to see, you know, that the weather, uh, being able to watch that and then just watch the cycle of the grasses, you know, when it really starts to come up and, you know, get green and when it starts to go dormant and, and what it takes for each of those things to happen. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And I would be willing to bet if I took that notebook away from you, which is really smart, by the way, to do that. But if I took that away from you, I'll bet just based on feel, you would be able to feel out probably 95% of all this stuff that you're writing down at this point. I think it's so cool. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Tell us about the property itself. Um. Yeah, so this is... This is actually in a, a farm district, is what they call it. And um, what that is is it was uh, used to be desert land, and I believe in the 
seventies, um, some people came in and drilled wells, uh, and started, uh, cultivating this desert ground. Um, and, and it's at the bottom of a valley. Um, and so, uh, so that, I think that's where the aquifers are, you know, the, the water under, under the ground is, is all here at, at the bottom of the valley. Um, but so anyway, so this, the, the property itself, I think has been in production one way or another, uh, since the seventies. Um, and when it got turned to pasture, I think was about 20 years ago. Now, uh, the early part of, uh, the two thousands is when it turned to pasture. Um, and it's, it's been pasture, uh, mostly pasture ever since then. Okay. So I didn't know that that's actually really important to point out as far as this discussion goes, you're saying that in, in 30, from the seventies to 2000, it was a desert transformed into good enough soil that we could grow stuff. And then now pasture where grasses is growing perennially. Right. Yep. And I'm not sure of the crops they grew before. Um, but I, I would imagine they did, you know, cereal grains and, and probably alfalfa, uh, before, uh, to, you know, to start that process of, changing. Wow. But, but so cool to say that that can be done. We can transform the land and have it be more fertile. That's so interesting. I, I love that insight. So what, what is the day in the life like for you? Is every day vastly different? This was really fun to talk to you about, um, in person a few weeks ago, but tell, tell the listeners like what, what is, what is normal life for you? Like, sure. Yeah. Hope, hopefully I can make it understandable. Uh, I think there's, there are some things that happen every day. Uh, for example, I, I get into a routine, especially in the summertime of moving the cows every day. Um, you know, we, we, we do rotational grazing. And so we have the cows on a, oh, it's probably about an acre and a half to two acres, um, each day. And we move them to a new patch of grass each day. Um, and so, you know, that includes, uh, putting up fence, taking down fence, uh, it's just temporary fencing, um, you know, so it's not, not like we're putting in T-posts and barbed wire every day. Um, you know, it's, it's just the uh, poly wire, um, and like fiberglass posts that come in and out. Um, so we do that. And then, uh, depending on where the cows are, I, I need to bring water to them. Sometimes, uh, we have some plumbing that has uh, permanent watering points, but not throughout the whole farm yet. Um, so I've, I've got to haul water to them. Um, you know, so that's, that's usually something I would, I started doing first thing in the morning as I would go and, uh, you know, make sure the water, the irrigation water is still running. Uh, and then I'd build the fence, move the cows, uh, move the water trough, uh, after, and get all that going. After watching the videos of you moving the cows, I understand why you do that early in the day. Those guys are chomping at the bit to get to their <laughs> new area of food. They are they they need no coaxing, I will say. Yeah, it's actually been awesome because you know the 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 general or the normal way to move cows is from behind. Like if you need to drive them somewhere, you go from behind and you kind of push them. Mm. Um, and that's that's how they've you know been conditioned, and that's you know that's probably the most common way to move them. And so what I've noticed with this is that if I get in front of them, they start following me around <laughs> and, and that it's actually really helpful. You know, you can use that to your advantage. So I just go to where I want them to be and I open the gate 
and you know, I start to walk through and then they see it and they, wow. they make a beeline and That's I don't awesome. have to get behind them at all. So, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Really watching cool. that video was great. I love that. That's awesome. So you do have some day-to-day stuff that you have to keep up with, but I'm guessing the rest of the year would be really kind of hit and miss for different tasks and different things that you have to do. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. There's, there's definitely some seasonality, of course. Uh, you know, uh, during the spring and summer is when we, we try to do our calving. Um, and so for me, I have a, a registered purebred herd. And so one of the things we have to do is take birth weights, um, and different data from the calves, uh, within 24 hours of birth. Um, that just helps us keep track of, of genetics and, you know, different things like that. Um, and so that, that's a little bit of work, uh, in the spring and summer to do that. Um, but that usually only lasts for a month or two. Um, but then we have, you know, we've got to wean the calves at certain times a year and we got to uh, work them and, you know, give them shots and, you know, help them stay healthy. And, um, you know, so there's, there's that kind of stuff in the, uh, in the summer and spring. And then like right now in the fall, you know, I, I've just finished weaning. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm separating groups out, um, you know, and moving them to different places. We, once our, once our uh, summer feed kind of slows down, I'm able to use uh, the neighbor's fields uh, for their, their crop aftermath. And so I can, so I can move the the cattle to, you know, different places in the Valley. Wow. Um, So, so that's what I've been working on this morning is getting ready for all of that. Yeah. Nice. And you said it's always better for the cows to have um, kind of live plants versus like in the wintertime, it's not ideal for them to eat hay, for example. Right. And then hay is, hay is fine. Uh, you use it when you have to. Um, but I, I think, you know, even though the plants go dormant in the, in the winter time, um, I think it's always better just to have them on pasture. Um, yeah. So one of the things we try to do is to line up their, uh, nutritional requirements with what's available in, in nature at that time. So that, that's why we try to calve in the spring and summer. Um, because that's when they need the nutrition the most. Um, and that's when the grass is, is doing the best. Wow. Um, and so in the winter time when they're not as, um, you know, when, when they don't need as much nutrition, that's, that's when they can be on uh, dormant feed, you know, uh, grass that's, you know, kind of gone dormant for the winter and, and they can survive on that pretty well. Wow. That's amazing. Tell us about the cows themselves and what their uses are, because I, as I understand it, you, you weren't originally raising cattle for food. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So what we, um, so what this herd was doing before, uh, we bought it, um, they were selling breeding stock for other, uh, cattle producers. So we would sell bulls, um, that people would take and put with their cows, you know, to get calves. And then we would also sell females, you know, so people could, you know, uh, replace some of the females that, you know, that they would sell or, or get rid of. Um, so genetics was, was the main, uh, focus, um, or the main product. And we're, we're still trying to do that. That's still one of our enterprises. Um, you know, but I think it, it works and fits really well with, with uh, going straight to beef as well. Yeah. So what drove that decision? Um, you know, I was, I was trying to find different ways to, 
you know, to make this work, uh, you know, this is, this is all we want to do. Uh, we, you know, we want to run cows. That's, that's what we want our, our living to be. And, uh, you know, so I was just looking for, you know, other ways to, to generate income off of that and, and ways that would complement what we were doing. Um, and, you know, and, and we have been eating our beef for ever since we got here, really. I think the first year we were here, uh, we were able to put one of the cows in our freezer and, you know, we've, we've loved it and, and thought it's really good. And, and I think my parents, they may have had a good influence on me in that because they, they were very complimentary of the, the beef that they tasted at our house. Um, and so I thought, well, if, if city people think that this beef tastes good, then, then maybe we can make something out of that. That's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. So, so just curious for your family, one cow, how long would that last you? Yeah. Um, it, it kind of depends. And I, we may not be the best, uh, the best, uh, example of that because I'm, I can only eat beef and pork. And so I, I can't eat chicken. I have an allergy to chicken. And gotcha. so we eat a lot of beef. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what I say may not be typical for everyone, but, but for us, uh, you know, two adults and four kids, I think we can go through a whole beef in about six to eight months. Wow. Okay. So um, maximum is two animals per year. Right. Yeah. To feed two ranchers and their four very active children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah, and, and that's almost, I, I don't think we've, we don't eat beef for breakfast, but almost every other meal we, we usually have beef in. Yeah, so. wow. And you also, I, I know you got into chickens not too long ago, and so you have fresh eggs. And you also have one separate cow that is your dairy cow, right, for family use? Right, yep. So we've got one of our own who is hopefully bred, uh, and she'll calve next summer and start giving milk. Um, and then my brother-in-law, and his wife, they have a, a milking cow right now that they, they let us share milk with. Wow. That's great. It seemed like it was more cream than, than like milk. It's, it's awesome. She's a Jersey breed. And so they're known for having, you know, more cream. And I think if you had like a, a gallon jar, I would say that the top third of that jar, once it settles, the top third of that jar is cream. Top third. That's amazing. Do you make butter out of it ever? I haven't. I, my wife has, has done that. Uh, and I don't know, it, it's different than what you get at the store, uh, because the whey comes out, I guess, and it makes it kind of liquid on, on the top of the butter. I don't know if you've ever seen that or no, I haven't, Interesting. That, but it, it's good butter though. We, we like it. Wow. That's great. What, what, what is a typical life cycle of a cow that is being raised for meat? Um, I mean, you, we could start as early as, uh, you know, a genetic planning. So, cause I, what I do, uh, well, one of the things I do to, to get my cows bred is I, I use artificial insemination. Um, and so I, I, t I take, um, you know, the genetic information from my cow herd. And then I look at the bulls that are available to use. And I, I try to make the best mating from that, um, uh, before I, you know, before we even get started. And so, so that, that'd be the first thing probably, uh, you know, the, the planning to get them bred. Uh, and then, you know, I go through some protocols to, to make that happen. And then, uh, yeah. And then, uh, so after that, uh, you know, they, 
they get pregnant uh, and it, it takes about nine months. You know, there's, there's a little variation just like in people, um, but it's nine months um, to, uh, to gestate. And then, uh, then they calve and uh, they stay with their mothers for about uh, seven, six to seven months, somewhere around there uh, nursing. Um, and then at that point, uh, we'll take them off of their mothers. Uh, and one of the reasons we do that is uh, because they, they start to get big enough that it'll it'll really suck down, you know, the health of the mother. They, they get, oh. can get thin, they can, you know, lose body condition, mm. and, you know, it can, it can be hard on them. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we do that. Some, I don't know, some people feel like that's cruel, but I think that's just a normal part of husbandry sure. that needs to happen. Um, but anyways, uh, so they, they get weaned at anywhere from six to eight months, let's say. Uh, and then, um, we usually keep them away from their mothers for 45 days or so. Uh, and then we, we put them back in, uh, the, the herd so that we can manage everything together. Um, and then from, from that point on, uh, really they, they just stay with the cows. They stay grazing. Um, and probably probably about a, a year or so goes, uh, goes by, um, before they're ready, um, to be harvested for, for meat. Yeah. Gotcha. And is there advantages or disadvantages to either going for a shorter life or for a longer life? Um, let's see. I, I've heard, uh, different theories about all these. Um, and I guess, uh, I, I'm sure there's merit to all of them in their own regard. Um, but it seems like animals that are um, that are still growing, um, they usually have better uh, flavor and better tenderness than an animal that's stopped growing. Um, and it, it can be debatable about when they stop growing, but it could be up to up to four years old, I would say, in some animals um, is when they they stop completely growing. Um, and for us, most of the, the calves that are born for beef, they'll be they'll be finished by then. They'll be harvested and you know and, and made into the beef by then. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So somewhere in like the two to three kind of year mark. Right. Yep. Yeah. So tell yeah. us a little bit about the harvesting process itself. How do you guys end up harvesting the cattle? It sounds like you guys do it in a really unique way. Yeah. So we. And I'm actually pretty proud of the way we do this. Um, and I was, I was telling my wife last night how it it really feels good because we have a hand in these cows' lives from the beginning, even before they're conceived, to the end. You know, until how they're used. And and I feel really good about that because uh, I feel like I have control over how all of that happens. You know, and so I can ensure that it happens in a in a responsible way, in a way that makes me feel good, um, in a way that I, I think can make the cows feel good too, and, and not have stress. And so, um, so we have our friend, uh, who does the, the processing and, uh, harvesting for us. And so he comes to our farm, um, and, and I'll bring the cows right off of the pasture, um, into a little holding pen and, you know, and he'll harvest them right there. And he brings equipment with him. He has a uh, refrigeration unit trailer that he brings. And so he'll, he'll quarter the animal, uh, and put it in that refrigeration unit, and then he'll transport it back, uh, to his facility 
um, where he then will process it into, you know, the different cuts and, and that type of thing. Yeah. Wow. So, so the cows literally are born, they live and they're harvested all in the same place. They never leave the property. Right. Yeah. Or, or the Valley. I mean, we go, like I mentioned earlier, we, we do go to, you know, some other places to graze, but they're just, they're right here. They're neighbors. Yeah. You know, little field trips. Literally. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm sure you get a really good sense of this. The co- what, while the cow is alive, what is the quality of life? Yeah. So I always tell people that this is heaven for cows. Uh, you know, this is the, the best life they could have. Um, and, you know, just across the fence line, we have desert and there's range cows there. And, you know, they, they have a little, a little bit harder. They have to work a little harder. Um, you know, walk a little farther to water and, you know, all those things. And, and then, and that's fine too. You know, I think cows are adaptable. They're, they're built, they're built for that, but, um, but like our cows have a pretty cush life. Um, you know, every day they get fresh feed, they get fresh water, uh, they get to move every day, uh, you know, and they're, they're hardly ever in a place that doesn't have grass or, or some kind of ground cover, you know? And so it's, I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine any other way that, you know, that could be better. Wow. Honestly, That's amazing. And, and for the cows that are further out, um, other people that use those other rangelands is predation a concern? Like do, do cows have natural predators the closer they get to say like the mountains or something? Um, that, that's debatable. I, I think there's, there's some problems with, uh, like coyotes preying on calves, newborn calves. Um, and most of, mostly I think that's from calves that aren't able to get up quick enough or their mothers don't pay good enough attention to them, things like that. But, um, really there, there's not a whole lot of, of predation, at least here, um, in our, in our Valley, in our area that I'm aware of, I, I would say coyotes are, are maybe some of that, or maybe crows. Wow. Um, but other than that, Interesting. Not a whole lot. And I, I've just heard that coyotes themselves are like master um, hunters. They, they, they really know what they're doing and it can multiply really quickly, I think. Yeah, I, I've heard that too. Um, and it's actually really neat because in our pastures, uh, we have coyotes and we, we don't shoot them. Um, but what we see is the coyotes, they'll be, you know, meandering through the cows and they're, what they're doing is they're getting meadow voles and mice and gophers and squirrels. And they don't pay any attention to the cows. <laughs> wow. um, and if, if they get too close, the cows will run them off, you know, but uh, they, they coexist pretty well. Um, you know, they're, they're doing two different things and they don't, they don't need to bother each other. Wow. Wow. Maybe this is a good time to ask the question. Like you must witness this all the time, the nature, the relationship of plants and animals and how everything works together. Um, I, I, th- I thought the documentary, the, the biggest little farm did a really good job kind of showing farm life. And obviously they started out with a lot of money and there was a little bit of, you know, criticism there, but they took dead land and within a few years diversified it and made it into this amazing farm with all of these different species of animals and plants. And you really got the sense of like, all of this is so important for this system to work. You need all of it. Can you comment a little bit about what you've observed as far as that goes? Yeah. Um, I, I, there's there's so much <laughs> with that, um, but I I think hopefully this will tie into to that. But one thing that I've noticed um, really and and has really hit home in the past year or two um, is that 
what we see uh, is just a small part of what's actually going on. Um, and so I think my traditional mindset when I first started working with cows, the first thing that I tried to manage for was the cows, you know, how they were doing, uh, you know, and then, then after a little while, I started to realize, well, the pasture is what, you know, supports them. And so I need to worry about the pasture a little bit. Uh, and then, and, and those are both visual things that you see every day. Um, and what I've come to come to learn and coming to learn is that even there's more beyond that, even below the pasture in the soil. And I, I don't see that every day. And so it's, if we're not uh, being intentional about caring for that, um, it can go by the wayside because we're worried about what we can see. We're, you know, we're worried about the cows and the grass and we forget about, you know, what's supporting all of that. That's and incredible. So, yeah. So I, I don't know if that ties into to that or not, but that's, absolutely. that's what came to mind. Wow. No, absolutely. That's amazing. It would be so obvious for somebody like me who doesn't have a background in this to show up and think that exact same way. Like, let's take care of the cows. And it's like, the cows will take care of themselves. The grasses will take care of themselves. All of the plants and animals will be fine as long as the, the foundation, the most important thing, the soil is taken care of. I think that's super profound. I really appreciate that answer. Wow. That's amazing. Um, one of the things I also saw in that documentary was how that couple used natural kind of problem solving solutions to fix other issues. And, and again, everything seemed to benefit when they did. And so like an example that's coming to mind is I remember they were infested with, um, slugs or snails or something that they couldn't get rid of and they could like try to pick them off, but they'd obviously come right back until they learned like ducks love these things. Let's put the ducks in this area. They consumed all the snails and all of a sudden you fed all your ducks, they're fertilizing the land. And now there's no more snails. Like you just solved all those problems. Do you, can you think of like a specific example that, that you had to do something similar to that where a natural solution kind of fixed everything? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think it was our first year on the lease. Um, and what we had was, uh, we had a huge, uh, I, I don't want to call it an infestation, but we had a huge influx of clover, white clover. And white clover is good, um, but it you got to kind of be careful with it because it can cause bloat um, mm. in the cattle uh, if they eat too much of it. And so, um, so I had one part of the pasture that was just overtaken with clover. Um, and in the past, uh, the way that had been managed was that he would uh, he would spray it out and kill it. Um, and I there was a lot of reasons why I didn't want to do that. And one of them was that I couldn't afford it because it was my first year, you know, and I, I had no money. I put everything into getting started. Um, and and so I was, you know, thinking, what can I do with this? And I, I thought I can't spray it. I thought maybe I could borrow a, a tractor from the neighbors and cut it, you know, so that take when you cut it, it'll take away some of the um, some of that bloat capacity. So I thought maybe I could cut it. Um, and then I, I remembered something that I'd been telling people uh before that, that i i want to use my cows as the tractors and because i mean they don't run on diesel fuel they they work for me uh and so i thought you know i, I think it's time to put my money where my mouth is and, and really try to you know try to make that work turn those cows into tractors and so um instead of cutting the field or instead of spraying it out or any of those things i decided i'm just gonna um you know, start putting the cows on there in, in little, uh, paddocks is what we call them, you know, these little spaces, because that way they, 
they can get enough of other plants in there um, and not have anything else to um, to get caught up on. You know, because what what a cow does when they run in, they they kind of go wild. It's a feeding frenzy. You know, they'll just eat whatever they can. Uh, and so, if you have them in a small space like that, there's no way that they can, you know, that they can eat enough clover to die. And so, so I thought, well, that's that's what I got to do. And so, um, so I I got all my fencing stuff squared away, and and we just started grazing it and. I can't remember the size of the paddocks that we grazed, but I think I started really small because I was nervous. I didn't want them to, to be able to overeat. And uh, then we slowly got uh, bigger and bigger till I think we were about at two acre paddocks. And we, we grazed that whole field and have never looked back. And, That's amazing. You know, been grazing that way ever since. Wow. That's amazing. And I've heard, maybe you can confirm this. I've heard that cows will choose different grasses, presumably because they know what is missing in their nutrition. And so they knew, know that if they get a little bit of this and a little bit of that, that combines for a better nutrition. Is that something you've noticed? Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that. What I've noticed is the cows go for what they like the most. <laughs> um, and we call those ice cream plants. And so that's, that's one of the problems when, uh, when we, when you have continuous grazing, we call it when they just have a big area that they can freely choose is they'll just go after those, those plants over and over and over gotcha. and they'll never get a chance to recover. And there'll be a perfectly good plant right next to them that they, they never even look at, um, because they can keep going around to those ice cream plants over and over. Wow. Uh, and so when, when you, uh, sequester them into a smaller location for that short time, then they, they eat everything. Wow. Uh, and, and so I, and I think maybe that's like us, if we ate ice cream all the time, <laughs> you know, probably wouldn't be good, but if we, we have a good variety, maybe that's, maybe that's better for us. And I, I think it's better for them. Too. Yeah. Funny. I was just thinking like, I'm on a carnivore diet, so I don't need any plants, but now I know that there's an ice cream plant. I might start, I might start with that. That sounds good. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Try that white clover. Awesome. So, Delicious. Ice, ice cream plants. Plant. <laughs> that's hilarious. I want to make sure that we don't miss this. And I want to make sure that we do this in a respectful manner, but let's talk about the death of the animal going back to the, the life cycle and the death cycle. How, how physically, how is the animal harvested? Yeah. So our friend that comes and does that, he has a firearm that he uses and it's, it's specially made, um, for, for doing this. Um, and so, and he's, he's really good. He's been doing this for 30 years. And wow. so he's, he's extremely capable at, you know, at doing it. And so, um, really the cow one second, they're there and he's, he's good enough that all it takes is one shot and it's, you know, it's, it's finished. Um, and that's something that's really important to us too, um, for a lot of different reasons, but, you know, we, we care about our cows. We don't, we don't want to see them suffer. And, you know, uh, if you're not, if you're not concise and quick with the harvest, you know, that, that there's just, there's no excuse for that in my opinion. Mm. Um, and so it's important to us that he, he knows what he's doing. He does it quick. You know, it's, there's no pain. It's, it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So. Is there any, um, I mean, I've heard you guys describe this, like, you know, your cows, like to say that, you know, your cows, like you, you have names for your cows, like, you know, their personalities and, and they, they sound to me like pets, frankly. And so is there any kind of like, is there any kind of like trauma or is it, is it difficult on those days or, or is it just kind of accepted that this is just part, this is part of the life cycle? Sure. I think for me, 
Um, I, I handle a little better than my wife does. Um, you know, and I guess that's a little ironic because I'm the one that's there. She, she stays home on those days. She doesn't want to, you know, see any of that or be a part of that. Um, you know, but for me, it, it feels, it actually, and I think I can speak for her in this too. It feels better knowing that we're the ones doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, and that we have uh, control over that and, uh, and how that's done because otherwise if, if you know, if we take a cow to a sale barn or, or somewhere else, we don't know, you know, what's going to happen. And so there's, there's a little bit of comfort in that, you know, that yes, this is, this is not something that's glorious that happens, but it is, it is a part of the process. And, um, and it, when it's done correctly, I think we can, we can be proud of it and be, be happy with how it's happened. It's very respectfully done, and I can tell it's done with a lot of intention for sure. So the cow then gets quartered and taken away and is processed into, you know, I, I would assume a lot of different things. Is there other parts? Are there parts of the cows that are not used? Yeah, and, and that's that's something we're trying to trying to prevent. Um, and I think that's one thing that uh, the conventional beef supply chain does really well is they they hardly have any waste. Mm. You know, they, they find a use for everything, for hides, for hooves, you know, all that. And and with us, we, we don't really have any, we haven't found any place to go with a lot of that stuff. And so I, I keep organs and, you know, I, I keep as much of the stuff that can be eaten as possible. Um, but a lot of it, unfortunately, it goes into a, a pit, you know, and, and, you know, even the hides, which is a shame. Um, but I, I just... You know, at where at the point that we're at right now, we just we don't have any outlets for any of that kind sure. of stuff. Sure. Yeah, I, I would feel the same way. It's a shame that it's going to waste. But if there's not a use for it, that doesn't sound like a waste to me. It's going back into the earth. That's going to provide sure. the nitrogen that we need. And so that I, again, I don't I don't see that wasted. It'd be cool if you could make a sweet coat out of it or something. But yeah, you're right. Like that's that at, at the very least, it's going back into the earth and is going to be returned in the form of nutrients that come up in those grasses. Right. No, that's, that's a good, I like that. That, mm. that sounds better. That feels better. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I, I definitely don't see it as any kind of a waste. Um, and you choose to do a lot of your beef as ground beef. Personally, I love that decision. I think that's great because it's very versatile. You can make ground beef in anything. Is there advantages or disadvantages to say selling ribeyes in New York, some porterhouses and all the, 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 those types of cuts that you do a more limited amount of versus kind of putting it all together and, and, and having it as ground beef? Yeah. So the reason we, we did that originally, um, was because that's how we wanted our beef. Um, you know, my, my wife, uh, feels like it's extremely versatile, you know, trying to feed four kids, I don't know, steaks every night, probably not going to work. Kids are still getting their teeth and, you know, it's just, it's not, uh, not as enjoyable for them. My, my oldest daughter though, she does love steak. Nice. Um, so when, when she gets a chance, she, she likes a good steak. Nice. Um, but, but yeah, so that, that was originally why we did it. Um, because it, like you said, it was, it was versatile, you know, you can use, you know, uh, lots of different, use it in lots of different things. Yeah. Um, and on the other end of that too, on the, on the cattle side, um, you can use a lot of different kind of cows to make that ground beef. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but compared to the cuts, you know, for, for cuts to be made, uh, you really need a, a young animal that's that's still growing, 
Um, and so you're a little more limited on your selection there. Gotcha. Um, whereas if you're, if you're doing it in a ground beef, you know, there's, you don't have to worry about tenderness or marbling or any of that with the ground beef. And so, um, you know, you have more, more options that way. Yeah. Interesting. And, and when I talked to you, you said as of now, you're just doing ground beef. I have observed definitely a market for people that are requesting ground beef with a little bit of those organs mixed in, in particular, the liver. Do you think that might ever be something you would try? Um, like to market, market a mix like that. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a mix of like, this is 95% ground beef with 5% beef liver mixed in to kind of hide the taste. I know a lot of people in the carnivore community specifically that are trying to get more organs in their diet, but they might be like Uh me where like, they don't have the taste for it. They can't just cook up liver and have that taste good. And so finding ways to get that kind of nutrition into people is, is sometimes, um, kind of requested. And I, I see a market for that in ground beef. Is that something you would consider? Yeah. I, I had never thought of that before. Um, but that's, that's certainly something I'd, I'd be willing to explore. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, okay. So, so grass fed grass finished versus conventional. Let's just go now to like the eating of it. First of all, I would say the flavor of your ground beef is so good. It is so good. Last night I was just telling you last night I made four about a third of a pound burger patties, I snarfed it right up. They were absolutely delicious with a minimal amount of seasoning, a little bit of salt. They were so good. My only experience with grass-fed, I presume to be grass-finished, which is questionable, beef is either that it's it's super expensive. Um, I've had... I've had some cuts of ground beef that I could not eat for taste. They just did not taste very good. Or like the stuff that I get at the store, I just don't notice any difference besides it's costing me double. It looks the same. It feels the same. It tastes the same. So oftentimes in the past, what I've done is if I wanted, you know, ground beef, I just buy conventional ground beef because I because of those limiting factors. What would you say uh, specifically about like the taste and the nutrition of grass-fed beef versus conventional beef? Yeah. Um, I don't know when, when we harvested our first cow here, I, I definitely tell, could tell a difference. Um, you know, because up to that point we had just eaten conventional beef. Um, and so I, I could definitely tell a difference. Uh, now, well, I guess that from that time until about a month ago, I really couldn't tell much of a difference until we went to a restaurant, uh, I forget when that was a month ago, I think. And I had a burger and it, it tasted fine, but the beef, it didn't, it didn't taste like anything. It, it was hot and it had a bunch of fixings on it, but it, it, it tasted flavorless almost. Wow. Um, and that's the first time that I've really noticed that. Um, and so I, I don't know what it is. I don't know, you know, what makes that difference, but uh, I could definitely tell that there was, there was something different between that burger I had there and the burger I make at home. Wow. I would say just visually too, like looking at the meat that's coming from your packages, it it's not it's not purple. It's just this like different, richer color of red with like the contrasting like flecks of fat in there. It it looks comp- I've never seen beef that looks like that. It it looks literally like more rich. Huh. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm in fact, I went to visit our friend uh, that does the processing uh, when he was working on some of those. And I, I walked in, uh, you know, when he was grinding up some of that hamburger and I, it was beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, that, that may sound like a overstatement, but 
when I looked at it, the color, it was like you said, it was a rich, full color. And, you know, the contrast with the white, it made me hungry. I thought, man, that looks really good. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, is that from one of our cows? And he said, yeah, that's that, that was the one we just did. And, you know, and it was it looked, it looked great better than anything I've seen in the store. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So for somebody who is city bound, maybe they're on a budget they can't, they can't do what I did and buy a quarter cow. So, so what would you tell to that person based on your understanding of just being around this stuff? I, I I know you're not like an expert in nutrition per se, but I think you know a lot more than most people since you're around it so much. Would you tell them that like if, if that was their only option, conventional eggs, conventional meat, um, that kind of thing, should that kind of thing be consumed in your opinion? Or is it something that like, if you can't do grass fed, grass finished, you probably should avoid it to begin with. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I don't, I don't really know for sure. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've been at the point where I just, I had to do where I, what I had to do, you know, to put food on my table, you know, so I, I don't fault anybody for, you know, for, for doing what they have to do to, to fill their bellies. Um, but I, I think if you can, if you have the options, um, you know, I, I think the best food you can get, you know, is, is what you, you ought to be doing. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think that's very fair. That's the way I would have answered that question. What I recommend to my people as well is do the best you can. That doesn't mean that you can't sometimes go get a rotisserie chicken for five bucks. If that's the best you can do, it's not optimal, but it's, it's at least something. And I still think like a few conventional eggs and a pound of ground beef is like probably the best nutrition that you can get of any kind it's going to be better than if you're avoiding that kind of thing and having a bunch of processed crap, all the stuff that we find in the middle of the grocery store becomes your only option then. And it's like, yeah, like not ideal, but maybe you should have just got some more basic eggs and just cook those up and have that be your nutrition for the day. So I appreciate that answer. Yeah. yeah. Well, and when, when I was single and living on my own, that's, that's what I ate a lot of was eggs. Nice. <laughs> uh, Cause it, it had protein, you know, it filled my belly. I didn't feel too hungry afterwards. And, you could go a long ways with snakes. Yeah. So. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. I, again, I know you're not a nutrition expert. But you got a front row seat. You told me that you guys consume massive amounts of beef and pork. You eat lots of eggs, um, mostly animal products with high fat, high cholesterol. You're raising your kids this way. They're drinking cream, essentially. What do you observe in your family as far as health goes? Are you worried that your little kids are going to start blowing up with heart disease all of a sudden? Or like, what are you observing in in yourself and those around you? Sure. Yeah. And, and there's probably two components to that. You know, uh, they say there's uh, nutrition and then your lifestyle. You know, and I think you could probably eat all the right foods, but if you just sit at home all day, you probably still won't be that healthy and maybe vice versa. Yeah. Good uh, point. And so, and I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not completely true, but, uh, what I've noticed is that my kids are active. You know, we, we open the door in the morning and we turn them out <laughs> for lack of a better word. And they, they run all day they make me tired just looking at them, you know? And so they're, they're active, they're doing stuff, they're using their mind, they're using their their heart, you know, they come in out of breath. They, you know, they're very active. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't worry about their health. Uh, I, I feel like they're very healthy kids. They rarely get sick. Um, and, and if we have the occasional cold, you know, they, they have a stuffy nose for a week or so. 
you know, I, I don't, I can't remember the last time any of them have gotten sick, you know, with the flu or where they're bedridden or they can't get out of bed or anything like that. I, you know, I, I don't worry about that at all for them. I, I feel like they're active. They, you know, they eat food. They're, they're good. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. I'm going to share with you my observation of your kids. I got to meet them as well as they were all in town. I actually got to meet them twice because the next day when we went to pick up the beef, um, yeah, they were around. So it was cool. I got to observe them two different days, two different times a day. I rode my bike from my house up to your mom's house. They were all at the park and they were playing and they, they were very active, but uh, how do I describe it? They weren't like chaotic. They were just like energetic and they saw me. And I saw these kids, I didn't know who they were. And I saw these kids playing on the swing set and I waved to them and they waved back and like, they were observant. They acknowledged me. They were very polite. Um, it, it came to be that I went into the house and all the kiddos came in as well. And they were calm. They were just calm. I don't know how else to say it. They, they were extremely observant. One of them asked for milk. And I think, you know, grandma poured them all like half and half cream, which I was like, that's awesome. That's amazing. And they, they didn't like, they talked and they had conversations, but their temperament was, yeah, like, like energetic, but, but very calm. And I, I, I just, I don't see a lot of that around me. Like even for a, a kid to wave back at me, I don't see a lot of these days. A lot of kids will like not look at you or turn away, or they'll be like either hyperactive or throwing a tantrum. And that was just something that I didn't observe whatsoever. I'm sure they blow up on certain moments, but that was, that for me was really interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that observation. And, and I, I don't know if this makes any difference, but you know, we don't, we don't do video games or iPads or anything like that. They, they don't have, you know, any, any of that kind of screen time. We watch movies at night. Um, but that's really the only time they're, they're looking at a screen. And so I, I feel like that's the way that me and you probably grew up, you know, in, in that generation, we didn't have iPads and, you know, all that stuff. And I, I feel like that helps you develop your mind and, you know, helps you be a, a well-rounded person. Yeah. The yeah. pictures, I told you the pictures are just amazing. And, and, and I commented this to you a few weeks ago. It's, it, there's a longing. You, you see that and you're just like, I, ah, man, I like, I kind of want that life. That looks so cool. And like <laughs> the kids are playing around in the water troughs as the cows are drinking and there's a calf <laughs> in your bathroom in the winter time that needed to be taken care of. And like, they're, they're with the, the animals and they're with the grasses and they, they just, they seem, uh, yeah, they seem like they had so much innate, like wisdom that they were tapping into. Um, that again, I don't, I don't see a lot of, I thought it was super cool. I thought it was a very, very cool observation. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I want to conclude this conversation by asking you three different questions in, in three different ways. And, and I, I, I do this again, just based on observation. You have a front row seat to all of this stuff. And, and sure. I don't, I don't think you need to be an expert per se in any of these fields. And in fact, I think you have an advantage again, being front row for these things. You, you don't have anything to gain or lose by talking about some of these things. So the first question is in your opinion, kind of like we talked about, as far as health goes, eating animal products, what would you want the average person to know about consuming what most people would consider massive amounts of beef and eggs and cream and all the stuff that people have been told not to eat for 70 years? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I feel, I feel like animals were created for a purpose and Part of that purpose is to give us nutrition 
um, and, you know, and to, to give us nourishment. Um, and so I, I, I guess I feel like if, if we're not doing that, then, then we're wasting a resource that's been given to us uh, specifically for our benefit. Yeah, I appreciate that answer. Thank you. Let's talk ethics now. What would you want the average person to know about the ethical consideration of consuming animals? People that say, like, I choose not to eat any animals or animal products because I can't stand the thought of an animal losing their life. Sure. Yeah, and maybe it's the same uh, the same kind of answer to that, but um, I don't know. Uh, if you... I guess maybe to to ask a question, you know, what, what is more uh, inhumane or what is more uh, terrible for something to waste away and and die normally, or, you know, for it to be, uh, for it to be harvested and used uh, in a way that's uh, beneficial to everyone. Um, You know, I I think, I guess I don't know what, what people think, you know, but are you just going to turn a cow out and, you know, out in the desert and let them live a life and, you know, and never, never use them for anything. Um, you know, that, that doesn't seem very, uh, what's the word? That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like a good thing to me. And I I don't think a cow would have a good life that way either. Um, I, I feel like, I feel like it's, it's, that's, that's what they're made for. That's, one of the things they're made for that's i don't think that's all they're made for but i think that's one of the things they're made for and and they're really good at at giving us nutrition and giving us what we need Mm. Uh, so i don't know yeah that's a really good answer I, i cows to me appear very social and i think about that one cow isolated in the middle of nowhere like what what chance does that cow have to survive he's sitting prey he's going to have a death and i would argue that death would be far worse than something that's really instantaneous having a little bit of a background in you know um I guess like monocropping something that we mentioned in the introduction. Can you comment on the, the the true story of how destructive and how much death is involved in monocropping? Yeah. And you know, there's, it's hard to, to have a blanket statement. You know, there's, there's different people that, that really try to be conscientious and, and then there's people that, that don't. And then there's, you know, everyone in between. Um, but the potential um, that monocropping has, you know, for, for death and for, you know, uh, that kind of negativity, I think is pretty high. Um, you know, I guess, I don't know, for example, if you have one, one field, a crop field, you're trying to grow a certain crop, anything that's not that crop, the alternative is to kill it, you know? So if it's, you know, they call it a weed, you know, but maybe it's beneficial, you know, so like, for example, let's say we're, we're trying to grow a field of alfalfa and you have some orchard grass that comes up in that field. If you don't, if, if you are only focusing on the alfalfa, then you've got to kill that orchard grass. And what that does uh, is it interrupts the soil cycle. You know, when you when you kill something that way and put a synthetic pesticide on there, it can interrupt the microbiology in the soil. And so it kills some of those microbes and, um, and then, you know, let's, let's say that, 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 uh, orchard grass goes away, then something's got to come in to fill the space that that orchard grass was in and it'd be another weed. They would call it a weed. 
Uh, and then that's something that they don't want. So they got to kill that too. Um, and you know, it's a perpetual cycle that, that just keeps going on and on. Yeah. No, that's really well explained. And I also think about, you know, harvesting the crops. There's an enormous amount of death done to animals during that process. I've heard that it can be rather traumatic to drive some of those combines, especially as you're harvesting through the final acres where all of these animals are condensing. And it can be a really difficult experience to see a lot of death of the animals and the critters that you mentioned that are kind of running around in the grasses all the time. Um, And I I just, I, I think about, I think about those scenarios and I go back to thinking that you, you can either choose the monocropping and destroying different plants and probably lots of chemicals and dealing with, um, you know, annual plants that aren't developing deep roots. That's depleting the soil versus a system like you have, which is you you have cows that live cow heaven lives. (laughs) They have one bad day, one bad moment, and that's it. And two animals, that have been alive and around and had a great life are now providing you and your entire family food for a year. Like, and, and so I balance those things and it's not to say that none of us, none of us has, doesn't have any blood on our hands. We all do. And, and I think that's the important thing to think about is all of us are part of this. We, if, if something is going to live, we're going to have to die and we have to grapple with the ethics of that. Sure. I, I agree. And I, like I mentioned previously, I, I feel good about what we're doing because we have a hand in everything from before birth until after they're harvested and, and processed. And, and so I feel comfortable, you know, with everything we do. And, you know, I don't, I don't feel any guilt, any shame, any of that. I, I, I feel like everything we're doing is good um, and it's responsible. And, and I feel like we're, we're being sensitive, uh, you know, to that animal you know, and to the different, uh, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I love that answer. And I'm glad that you take such pride in what you guys are doing, which is such great work. The third and final question that I'll ask you about that is you, you must like live in the epicenter of the destruction of the planet. You've got 150 cows around you all the time. <laughs> So the the argument is that cows are producing methane from farts and that is destroying the planet. And again, how that works in the atmosphere, I don't exactly know, but surely you being in this area for so long with all these cows destroying the planet, you must get some sense of what is happening ecologically, what is happening to the health of the planet. So my third and final question for you is as an, as an observant, what would you want the average person to know about raising cattle and planetary health? Yeah. So I've, in all the years I've been around cows, I could probably count on two hands, the number of times I've heard flatulation. Um, and so I don't know. Take that for what that's worth, but I don't, and I'm, I'm around cows all the time here. So I don't know if that means, I don't know if that means that they just don't do it in our environment or maybe there's something else, but, um, but I, I don't hear that very often at all. Um, so this, so I'd say that would be one thing. Uh, the second thing when I, every time we go to town, you know, we, or to a big place, you know, like Salt Lake or, um, you know, any other big population, uh, it, it definitely feels different to me, um, you know, to see all that asphalt and concrete and, and I'm, I'm really happy to get back, uh, to our home, you know, with, with grass and, and sunshine and, you know, clean air. And so 
uh, I, I feel like it's, it's a clean, a clean way to live. And I, I feel like we're, we're benefiting, uh, the, the, the planet and, you know, population is necessary, you know, having, having cities. And I think that's, that's probably a necessary thing. Um, but I feel like with what we're doing, um, I think we're adding to the health of the ecosystem, adding, adding to the health of the soil and uh, to the, to the planet. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, some, of some other, some other ventures may not, uh, be doing that same thing. Mm. Wow. Well, I really appreciate those thoughtful answers. And that that's certainly been my observation and talking to a lot of people that are in this world um, has been eye opening. And it's it's such a different narrative than what you hear, like on the news and certain, you know, social media and, you know, the plant based movement that's really being pushed right now. It's just not something I've personally observe the headlines look really scary, but when you go out and talk to these people, it's, it's very, very different. So I really appreciate all of your insight. This has been such an amazing conversation. I just have to say that like when, whenever the next pandemic is, or when it looks like the world <laughs> is losing their minds, I'm going to jump in my car with my wife and we might like build a little <laughs> shack on the corner of your property and just kind of <laughs> hang out and hopefully work for a few pounds of ground beef every single day. Um, Brennan, <laughs> Brennan, this has been an awesome conversation. Where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you and the work that you guys are doing on the farm? Um, so we have social media under HTTL Farms. Uh, we have Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Instagram. Um, and we've also got a website, uh, httlfarms.myshopify.com. Uh, awesome. We will link to all of that in the show notes. What is your availability for for people to purchase beef from you do they need to be local in this area is it is it better to kind of coordinate through you through the website or can people directly order um so people can directly order um and a lot of times that's more helpful because you avoid you know the card processing fees and all that kind of thing um but you know whatever is whatever is easiest people can order online or uh you know direct messaging and you know and work it out that way um, and I, I will say we we only uh, are currently delivering uh, beef to Utah and to Nevada. Those are the only two states that we that we're operating. Gotcha. Wow. That, well, that's fantastic. I'm very fortunate that I live so close and was able to meet you in person and get to know you and your family and, and learn about um, really ethical and amazing animal agriculture that produces food that feeds me and my family and tastes amazing and is doing something that's good for the environment at the same time. So, Brendan, thank you so very much for taking the time to do this, and thank you for your work in ranching. We really, really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the support. and all the encouragement and it's been great to, to visit and hopefully all the stuff I said made sense. Yeah, so. it definitely did. And I think it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much. Awesome. And this has been another episode of boundless body radio.
As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.